quite beautiful. His mercy is more. We need more and more of it. And he reminds us with every new morning that those mercies are new. And so here we are today, another day to count and consider his mercies that are, that are new. Uh, this morning, we're going to begin with a couple of slides to just show you some of what went on last weekend with Dino. And uh, we've got to, a little clicker up here that has been finicky, so it may work. We'll see. Um, so uh, we had a wonderful time together with about 120, 130 or so students and staff, uh, junior hires and high schoolers gathering here, um, uh, learning about the doctrine of repentance and uh, specifically real repentance, true repentance. So um, what I loved about our time was that we um, had everybody in here. Uh, we had an emphasis on the preaching of the word. And it was really uh, one main focus on, um, I would say it almost was like one sermon in a number of different ways. And that's because it was three C's that everybody, I think, held on to. The first C uh, was conviction. Uh, the next C was confession. And then the other one, the last one, and what he hit on so well was change. Uh, that true repentance involves all three of those. Conviction confession and change. So we had time in small groups to work these things out, talk with one another about uh, what the scriptures say about repentance, but also what that means of change in our lives to look more like Christ. Uh, if we have been saved, we've not been saved because we are holy, but we've been saved so that we can become holy. And so that is uh, really the process that all of us are in. And so it was a great time. Um, and uh, three, different, or, uh, three different messages from our guest speaker, and he really hit on uh, those three C's in different ways, and that really helped. Uh, Darren Roberts here was a, a great pastor to get to know, someone that uh, is a, uh, committed to all the same things we are here at Lakeside, so it was great to uh, build a partnership um, and to have uh, plenty of fun times and games and other things that were going on uh, for sure around here, uh, some service projects and things that we put the the kids to, to work. Um, it was sort of like slave labor, but for the most part, they were willing, so, uh, so it was all good. But um, yeah, it was really great to have their, the kids have such great attitudes, um, learning together, staying in host homes, uh, going to the church uh, kind of back and forth uh, each day, and uh, ending Sunday morning. We all had our cool blue shirts on um, and uh, just had a, a really wonderful time. So thank you for praying for our students, our staff, and we continue to see God working in ways that are really cool uh, in each of their lives. And um, I'm just excited to see what the Lord will do um, with this generation that is rising up. So, so that's, a, that's God's kindness to us. So thank you. And that is just a, a quick word back to you guys about, about Dino. Keep praying for our youth, please. Um, we need it. Uh, they need it. And uh, the Lord is um, uh, really... I think preparing our youth uh, to be to be able to stand in this world against all that is wrong and, and going wronger. <laughs> so, um, so thank you guys. So um, we get to the last one here, Chris. You want to go a few more clicks ahead so we can transition. Um, so we're going to be going to the Book of Ruth uh, starting uh, this morning. I would love for you to grab your Bibles, open up to the Book of Ruth with me. Um, we are going to go and be going pretty fast, but I want to say at the beginning here that when we go into the book of Ruth, what we're going to be doing is learning about how the Lord redeems us and guides us graciously by his providence. He leads us to himself and he guides us through life. Um, and uh, as you can see uh, on, your, on your papers, but also on the slide uh, above me here, um, just uh, going from ruin to redemption under the wings of divine providence. Uh, that is, I think, a summary of the book, and the book has four chapters in it, and so we're going to break down the book into two chapters today, and I'll be here again next Sunday to finish out the book with you, Lord willing. But Ruth 2.12 is, I would say, probably the a key verse of the book, and so if you want to kind of peek into that, I know it kind of jumps ahead and gives a little bit of a spoiler, but that's okay. We're all about that. Uh, Ruth 2.12, the Lord repay you, Boaz says to a recently converted Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a cool picture of God's care for his young. His little eaglets 
the ones that he scoops up, draws near, calls close, and covers well. It's a beautiful picture, and Boaz saw this, that Ruth was doing this, and he wanted to be an extension of what God was doing, and so God used him as well. And you see this throughout the scriptures. Um, on uh, the, the, the slide here, you'll see a, a number of other psalms that just uh, target this. Psalm 17:8, keep me as the apple of your eye, the psalmist says. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. <laughs> if you're in the shadow of the wings, of his wings, you're protected, cared for, close. Psalm 36:7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That is the place of hiding. That is a good place of refuge. Psalm 57, 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Uh, and, and again, Psalm 61, verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. Psalm 63, 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 91, 4. He will cover you with his pinions or feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So a protection for us when time is hard, when storms of destruction come, when all we need is to be near God. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to find out again and again and again that our best place to go to is beside God, under his wings, in the shadow of his wings. And he can take any one of us that is going through any kind of ruin, and he is redeeming that, and he is bringing us to a place of redemption, rescue, and blessing. So what I'm going to do is uh, go kind of fast through this. There might be portions of it that you want us to, uh, to study more and, and uh, get down into further, but I'm taking big chunks this morning. So I'm going to read a few verses and reflect. I'm going to read a few verses and then pause and draw out something that is there that we've just set our eyes on. But I'm hoping we'll do that in such a way that we'll see the many connections that there are to our lives from this beautiful beautiful book of redemption. So we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1 now and get to that first, that first point of reflection. It goes this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These, their sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Before we get into any more text, I want to pause and reflect on this first reflection, this first connection to our lives, that life is hard. Life is hard. <laughs> you take anybody who is in a cursed world, because of sin, this world is designed to decay. Our bodies are not getting any better, stronger, purer. They're also in a pattern of decay. And relationships are not easy. Relationships are frustrated. Our relationship with God is first and foremost frustrated in our own sin and, and with one another. And there's all kinds of problems that we look around and things inside of us, things outside of us, things ahead of us, things all around us. Life is hard. And if you look just at this short paragraph here, you can see an example of a time in history and a period where there is much ruin. Ruin is the word that I think of. First of all, in the days when the judges ruled. Okay, well, what was life like when the judges ruled? This was 
This was after uh, the people had been called out of Egypt and they had been taken to the promised land after Moses had been their leader. The guy after Moses was Joshua. He was their leader, brought him into the land. Now they had settled into the land and judges, different men, were raised up to be the one who ruled among the people, not as a king. The kings didn't come until the next period after the judges. So the book of Ruth takes, takes place during this period of the judges. Well, if you want to understand a little bit of what the spiritual climate was or, or things were like during the judges, you just go back one more verse. You're like, Kyle, this is verse one. I don't have another. Yeah, go to the last verse of Judges. <laughs> it's right over there. Um, not too far away. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king in Israel. And that also means God wasn't king. They weren't looking to him as their king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't that exactly the example? If you were to take away a king and didn't have the rule of the one, you would have just outright anarchy. I mean, it would just go crazy. Everybody doing what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so I, I would like to live my way. I would like to have my things. I would like to have them in my time. And no one will cross me or else it will be the end of you. I would like my home to function this way. I'd like to have my wife or wives do this or be that way. I'd like to have my you know, children obey me this. And everything just was doing what was right in their own eyes, left up to their own discernment, their own judgment, not to God and his law. So this means they were doing another way of saying they were doing everything that was evil in God's eyes. So they were disobedient. It was spiritually set against the purposes of God. So this was a time of spiritual decline. And there was a cycle. If you read through the book of, of Judges, you'll see it's a sin cycle where their sin just kept throwing them into further problems where they had uh, enemies come in and take them and they had uh, famine and other things. And this was all d divine discipline for their sin. So when you read Ruth 1.1, again, there was a famine in the land. You know exactly where this famine is coming from. God said this in Deuteronomy 28, in Leviticus 26, not too long before this, he said that if they didn't live according to his law, then they get spanked. I mean, they get disciplined. This is him caring for his people, saying, don't live that way. Why are you living this way? This is not how I said to live. So a famine was one of those disciplines of the Lord because of how they were living spiritually. And it says, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, so this isn't just kind of like a field trip. This isn't just like kind of a quick trip. This is them actually leaving the promised land that God had said, this is where I want you to go. A land flowing with milk and honey is where you'll be. And when you're there and obedient to me, it will flow with milk and honey. You'll have an abundance, prosperity, all of this there for you provided. God will take care of you. But they've left. They left because of the famine, obviously, but they left, and this is just further consequences of their spiritual um, uh, ruin, where they were at. And so here's a, a quick image of uh, where Israel is. This is Israel kind of like north to south, stretched out along next to the Mediterranean Sea, Egypt down over there, right? Uh, and so where they've gone to is Moab over here to the, to the east of the Dead Sea. So they've kind of made a trek along the pink arrow there. And the upside-down red cow <laughs> means a famine was in the land. Okay, so Bethlehem, Jerusalem, that area, uh, no cow. Um, and so they had to go and find food. So they, they left and, and, uh, and went that way. Now, when they went that way, um, this was them going away from, again, away from God, and God was going to call them back. But just think about all the layers of ruin. And I just wanted to say right away that I, I can't imagine um, the kind of pain that's in ruin that even that's collectively in just this room. When you go through a hard time in life, it seems like uh, difficult things happen and that's just the surface of it. When a hard, things ha a hard thing happens, it's because of so many other things as well and it leads to so many other things. And then every, everybody else around you is going through hard stuff. It's like when it rains, it pours. Have you heard that expression before? When it rains, it pours, which is, side note, is just kind of a, actually a little bit of a reverse meaning. Um, it came about in 1911. You guys know the meaning of where this first came about? Um, Morton Salt, uh, the little box with the girl and the umbrella and the box of salt, right? Um, so this is a slogan that was improving 
uh, a problem with the salt when the salt would either uh, get wet or be, you know, if it was humid or if it rained outside, the salt would clump up and it, you couldn't pour it out. Uh, and, uh, and so there was a problem with that. So what they did was they added a small amount of magnesium carbonate uh, and the salt poured out smooth like sand. So even when it was raining outside, the salt would pour inside. So that's when it rains, it pours. <laughs> It was actually a positive thing, so we use that today a little bit differently now. Um, and uh, and we, but that 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 statement, in the way that we mean it, sorry, Morton, um, is uh, today is like man, like when you're going through the ringer, you just know how difficult it is. I mean, it might start with pain, physical pain, chronic pain, or something like that. But you know how quickly that goes into relational problems, spiritual turmoil. Then you've got financial ruin, and then you've got all these other things socially that are going on, and you're just like, what is going on? This is so bleak. And that is what's happening here. So my heart goes out to Naomi for losing her husband, losing then her sons, and she's left with her two sons. They're then taken away. She's left without her two sons and her husband. And so all she has is two daughters-in-law. And she's almost like shook to a place where all she can do is just look to God. Oftentimes that is what we do when we see how hard life is. And so the second point we come to is in the next verses. There is hope. There is hope. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For, listen, she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, speaking of her, her sons. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up, they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return, af uh, your sister, uh, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So there is hope. Do you see it? There's a little bit of hope. The first five verses are very dark. Everything seems like loss, bereavement, pain, ruin. Everything just seems really uh, dark and despairing. But there's little beams that just come through those dark clouds, just piercing through. The first is that the Lord had visited his people. He had provided. Bethlehem means house of bread in Hebrew. The house of bread was shut down for a while. It was closed. But now he's restocked it. And so she hears that God had been gracious to his people. He's providing for them. He's heard their cries. Most likely as a nation, they've cried out again for help. Okay, we're sorry. We've done foolish and sinful things. And the Lord visits his people. So God is providing. His grace goes before. And let me just say this. Verse 6 to what we just read. The word return is used about nine times. Verses 6 to 22. So this is really the, the main idea is returning. Now we camped out on the word return this last weekend because that is the word for repent in the Old Testament. 
When you see turn or return, essentially it is with this family of thought and these words of repentance. And so when you see this returning to God, returning to Bethlehem, going back to Judah, what is actually happening is we've gone adrift. We've gone far off, and now we've learned our lesson, and we need to turn back to you, God. And I just love how beautiful it is, verse 6 there, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. His grace, his unmerited favor and kindness to them was shown to them, almost like drawing them back to him. And isn't that how repentance works? Repentance doesn't just work like a child when you get, you know, swatted or spanked, then you cry and you feel bad for yourself, and you get the next chance you get to go and do the same thing and try to hide it next time. Yeah, no, it, it, comes, it comes when there may be discipline if you're in that scenario again as a child, but, but maybe you're coming to your senses. You're, you're also learning something about who God is and his ways, and you're seeing that, that God doesn't just, like, hate you and want your life to be ended and over and hard but that he loves you and he's patient with you, even in your rebellion. And parents can emulate that well to their kids to show them that punishment for their, their sin is not just all heavy-handed and hard and negative and coming down on them, but it is filled with love and patience and long-suffering. And it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, like Romans 2, 4 says. So just even seeing a beautiful draw of God that he is kind to his people when they don't deserve it, and they're returning back to him and repenting. So here's Naomi going with her daughters-in-law, and she tries three different times to get them to say, stay, stay in Moab, it'll go better for you. What she's doing seems right in that she wants rest for them. When you say rest, she's not saying, look, we've been on our feet for a long time. No, she's saying, I want you to be in a place of rest in life. Rest for your life and having security and stability. They've just lost their husbands. She, Naomi, has just lost her husband. She's not pregnant at the moment. She can't bear for them another child that would potentially be a boy, grow up, and be old enough for them to then marry and say, okay, I've been able to provide for you. Now you can have rest. No, so she's seeking rest for them, telling them to turn back. Well, as she's debating there, and they're going back and forth, right? They're saying, no, we're going to go with you. And she says, no, stay. No, we're going to go with you. No, stay. Right? That's the conversation. Well, in that kind of turmoil and tension on the way back, there is a little bit more of her heart that you see. Look at verse 12. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? You see where she attaches her hope? Hope is not supposed to be found in a change of circumstances. And in this case, she was viewing hope as her ability to provide for them so they could have rest. She took her mind and her eyes off of the Lord, and she put them on her ability, her resources, to be able to provide rest for them. Instead of looking to the Lord and having her hope on the Lord, who could do whatever he wants, and you'll find out that he does. Oh, this is so instructive and corrective for us. How often can you put your hope in something that is not God and you can find out that it leads you to disappointment? Our children's behavior, a job and the fruitfulness of that job, the fulfillment of a relationship. We look for hope in these things. They don't fulfill. And then we realize at some point that we didn't put our hope in the Lord ultimately. So she's no doubt struggling and she's tempted to look to herself to provide a solution. And so she's hopeless in a way. Um, but she says to her daughters, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, verse 13. So she's growing bitter, and she is going through a very difficult time feeling almost ashamed and incapable of doing anything to help them. Look at that other ray of light in verse 14. But Ruth clung to her. <laughs> she just, no, you can't push me away. I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. Now, she didn't only cling to her in some physical way or, uh, or what have you, but there's also the words that she then uses. Verse 15, this is one of the most beautiful pictures, portraits of someone coming to the Lord in confession and conversion. Ruth says in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. She, she starts to say, I am so committed to you, let me tell you 
how committed I am. Wherever you go, Naomi, I'm going with you. She says, wherever you lodge, wherever you stay, overnight, even if it's in a foreign place, a scary place, a place where I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to be a protection for you. I'm going to be of a company to you, companionship. She says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Now that's significant language there. You may not see it right away, but when you read the Old Testament and you see how God chooses Israel to be his people, you know what he says? He says, I've chosen you, Israel, to be my people. And what does he say about himself? And I am your God. And when the people of Israel realize that, that Yahweh is the true God and he is their God, they will say those same covenant words back to him that he made with them. They'll say, you are my God. We are your people. You own us. We, we exist for you and no other God. We exist for you. You have been gracious to call us yours rather than some other people or rather than leaving us aside. And so when she says, your people shall be my people and your God my God, she's making a strong and bold statement to say, I am entering into a solid, lifelong relationship with the God, not of Moab, but the God of Israel, the true God. She's changed gods. She changed the community as well, your people, the people that know that God. I'm going to be one of them now, not known as a Moabite woman who worships Chemosh, they're one of their gods, who demanded uh, infant um, uh, sacrifices, but no, she was going a different way altogether. So she embeds not in her, just her commitment to Naomi, but her commitment to Naomi's God and, and her people. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She says, I'm going with you all the way to the end. Naomi is clearly older than Ruth, right? So if Naomi dies first, then she's saying, I'm staying with you all the way till the day you die and I will die as well. She's saying, I'm not looking for my hope in getting married to someone else or going off a different direction to find rest. I'm, I'm staying with you. She's basically given up her, her want or desire and chances to be remarried in some other way. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She's saying, I'm so committed to this. You can, you can even have, have God... <laughs> Strike me dead if I break any of these commitments to you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Verse 18, another ray of hope. So here we are, heading. Oops, I kind of went ahead, I think. Uh, so I can go back. Yeah, okay, so here we are. We've gone to Moab. Okay, now the cow is flipped. There's a green cow. He's standing up. Okay, so we're, we're moving back. And so they're, they're taking this not a very long journey, but they're headed back. And during this path back, there was this, you know, who was going to go back with? But now it is clear that Ruth was going with Naomi back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. And now we're going to see the next point. Let's read to the end of chapter one. So the two of them, not three, Orpah turned back, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, uh, the whole town was stirred because of them, almost kind of a buzz. Uh, there, were, there were whispers, there were people talking. This has been over 10 years. Think about this. They've been in Moab for quite a while. So everyone's stirring, talking, the women said, the men were probably out working on the field, so the women here saying, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew, and so she's saying, don't call me Naomi because that just sounds like the word pleasant. I am not pleasant right now. <laughs> she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. That's how I feel, so call me that. And she says, for the Almighty speaking of God, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, there's true and untrue things about that, that she said right there. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, almost kind of like in a, in a court, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem when at the choicest time, at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the very beginning of when you would start to reap all that had been growing and you would be able to have food again. You wouldn't have to wait months and months or for another season. The Lord had provided. So life is hard. 
there is hope. But faith is tough. I'm just saying this because it's true, and I'm just saying this because Naomi's wrestling, and I see this right here. The two of them go. Uh, the one of them is the one that is talking, feeling like she needs to address the whispers. And she says, the Almighty has done this to me. The Lord has testified. The Almighty has brought calamity. You know what? There's something here that I like, and there's something here that I don't. And all of you would probably be able to catch this very easily, too. Who is she charging with the wrong that was done to her? God. <laughs> this shows to me that she didn't chuck her faith and go to become an atheist as if that was a thing back then, you know, and, and to try to swap him out for another God. You know she's wrestling with? She's wrestling with the very God that she knows and has seen and has heard work in such mighty ways, be a sovereign God in control of all things. And when hardship comes, the most natural thing to her when she's struggling is to just blame him. And in a way, she's right. Because God has ordained all things that come to pass in our life. She's just struggling with it. She's not good with it. She doesn't like how he's done it. She didn't want it this way. She could think of a, probably a number of other ways that she would want this one God, who is the ruler of all things, to do things. Why? Why would you take my husband? Why would you take my son's? Why would you draw me back now into this community where I feel like everybody's eyes are on me, they're judging me, they know now I'm a widow, I have no hope, I have no sons to be able to help my daughters-in-law. And she's charging God with the wrong. There is something about this that I love. She's not chucking her faith. She's struggling in her faith. She's working things out in her faith. She's got a kind of bitterness in her that is like a root and it's growing and it's happened over some time now because it's been a while that she's lost her husband, now she's just having to face it. Everything is going to change. Everything is going to change. She doesn't realize how much hope she has. She doesn't realize that when she is in this place of feeling dark and down, how the Lord is actually behind that dark cloud, going to burst forth with a kind of light that she had no ability to know how to calculate how bright it would be, how good God would be, and how much he is caring for her. There have been these beams that have been shining through the dark clouds. She just looks at them as lightning bolts rather than actual sources of light that once this cloud breaks, I'll see again. She's struggling. She's struggling. So she accuses the Lord and blames him. But things are about to change. Chapter one is hard. There's a turn. There's a turn. In chapter two, we start to see the light. But it doesn't have to do with luck. <laughs> luck is fake. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. It's almost kind of like uh, considering all the details and the whole arguing and the whole like seeking of rest for your kids. Like maybe this would have been good to like remember that there's Boaz back home. But it's been a while and maybe things have changed. Maybe he wasn't available wasn't on the market. Um, and, uh, and so maybe some things had changed since then. Uh, we don't know. But it's just funny, this verse one statement. It's like, here's another really bright beam. Just, <laughs> oh, hey, Boaz, that's right. But then he keeps going. So then verse two. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, back to their dialogue, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, that one that was mentioned in verse 1, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Oh, wow. <laughs> Let's just pause here and just think about how God is directing his people, providing, protecting, working through his providence. First of all, Boaz, a worthy man, well, being a relative could have been uh, one uh, removed or another, uh, but, but someone who would qualify to be able to function in this place of redeemer in their home, so provide rest for these Moabite um, daughters-in-law. And now here, Ruth going back with her, a worthy man. Uh, we have different pictures in our head of worthy men. Uh, but if you just think biblically, kind of like, what is a worthy man? Well, oftentimes it's someone who is strong, someone who's good in battle, someone who is rich and had wealth. 
It could be related to these things, but um, within that concept of worthy man and defining what that is, there's also reputation. There's also honor. Someone who is worthy to be honored. This man is worthy to be honored because of the quality of the man, his character. He was a godly man. He was a rare find. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a Boaz, a worthy man. He might have been the only one. <laughs> it's, it's, it, not, it would not have been many. And so here is this probably one worthy man in all of Bethlehem, and he happens to be someone who is a close relative of Elimelech. This means that he could be somebody who could be a connection of hope to this family. Everything's starting to, to add up, and you're kind of going like, well, hold on. Let's see how this, how this plays out. This is very interesting. And, and Ruth takes initiative in verse 2, doesn't she? She's not the in, entitled brats that we have today that are kind of like go out to the field. Hey, where's all the, where's all the money, guys? You know, like, where, you know, where do I go to work? Where's my gloves? You know, like, where do, you know, just kind of going out there almost like with this sense of just like it's all just going to be handed to me. Yeah, no, 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 no. No, she goes out there with the most humble disposition, ready to just work her tail off and to just pray that the same God she has now just decided to follow, that he would send somebody who will be just kind to her and allow her to just collect the trimmings of the sides, the edges of the field. That's what she was going to do. She was not going to get a job and be employed like anybody else. She was going to function as someone who was like the most poor person that was in Bethlehem. She was just going. She, she knew that there was something in the law that the law of Moses said that when people go out to work in the fields, they're supposed to leave some of the leftovers to fall on the ground. So the poorest people could walk around and pick up after the people who were the real workers. So she went out there to be not employed, not to have a position of you know, high you know, esteem or something. She went out there to be lowly and to gather the things that they forgot about, to pick up the things that they were all walking on, to be mistreated, to be you know, bumped, to be laughed at, to be snickered at, to look different. She was a Moabite. She looked different than them too. And so she goes out there to work hard, glean after the reaper's in some field, and she happens to come to this field. I just love seeing her initiative that she takes. I love seeing how humble she is, and I love how she is so dependent on grace for anything good to happen. That's what I want to be. I want to be a Ruth. <laughs> That'd be so cool. I, I think of another woman in the New Testament that Jesus connected with. She was a Syrophoenician woman. She was not an Israelite. And when Jesus interacted with her she came to him and he said to her i'm going to the house of israel and she says i know <laughs> she knows she's not jew she knows that he has come to be their king she's an outsider she knew that but she said but but even even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table <laughs> like what? that kind of humility like i mean none of us as americans would say um excuse me you did not refer to me as a dog you know like where's my seat at the table you know like we we are so entitled we expect so much to be done for us at such little work that we can't even understand the depth of this humility it's beautiful that's so beautiful she depends on grace entirely for anything good to happen to her so luck is fake and instead i've just totally embrace this word providence. For those who are God's children, God does everything to care for you. He rules over creation in such a way to care for you, and he does that through his providence. God's providence is really the combination of his sovereignty as ultimate and absolute king and his goodness put together. Sovereignty and goodness come together. And that's what she was struggling with, Naomi was struggling with, wasn't it? She understood that he was sovereign. She didn't quite see him being good. It's because she, the story hadn't been written yet. She was still in chapter one. We can still be living in a chapter one ruined part of life and we're not ready to embrace that there are other chapters of our life to be written still. Goodness there. William Cooper, some of you may know that name. He was not a contemporary of anybody here, but uh, 1731 uh, to 1800 is when he lived. He was a contemporary of John Wesley, George Whitfield in England, and Jonathan Edwards in America. Five of Cooper's six siblings died in infancy, 
His mom died giving birth to his brother John when he was six. He was bullied mercilessly at Westminster. He, didn't, he was denied the hand in marriage to the one he loved, Theodora, because her dad said no. Uh, he experienced a grinding depression in his life, bordered on insanity. He attempted suicide multiple times, and he was finally saved by God's grace in an asylum. Although his heart had changed, he still battled melancholy. John Piper, who is alive today still, wrote of him, William Cooper, the battles in this man's soul were of epic proportions. Nonetheless, Cooper is known for writing the most theologically sturdy hymns, and he has wrestled with the kind of low point like these girls are in. One of them goes this way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Don't forget that a sovereign good God rules over your life. And he has many things that he will reveal to you as to why these things are happening for you. You may not know until the very end, but you do know from books like this that he has a plan and the clouds aren't the end, but that it will rain blessing. Let's finish out looking at what we see in verses four and following. This is more about the reputation, but not so much about the reputation of Boaz, but now of, of Ruth. And, and you'll see here how, how beautiful and wonderful this is. We'll, we'll end with our final point soon here. Follow along, verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to this young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant, who is in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, this is the first time that they talk, Hearts racing, I know. Now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged you that the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then he said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. What you see here is that in this narrative passage, um, that there is a reputation of the godly that goes out beyond you. And Ruth is not trying to establish herself as a well-known godly woman. 
She knows that she's an outsider. She knows that she's not worthy. She's just humbly going and serving the Lord and caring for Naomi. And this is exactly how this works, is that those who are humble and don't want their reputation to go out and your name to be bright and broad and everybody to know how holy and godly and great you are, those who are just happy to be content and humbly serving the Lord, doing what is right, not expecting to get paid, not expecting to get noticed, not expecting to get promotion. And those are the ones that God lifts up. God exalts the humble. He humbles those who exalt themselves. So what you see here is she humbled herself. And God has lifted her up for a time just like this. Boaz notices her. There's nothing here that shows that she was extremely attractive or that it was something surfacey in that way. No, what Boaz notices is he asks the chief workers, he said, hey, who's she? I didn't notice her from before. Like, where's she from? What's, what's her story? Her story is told. When he hears the story, you know what he hears? He hears humility, yes. He hears faith, yes. And he hears of love for Naomi. He hears of a reputation of love for others. That attracts him. And I would speak to anybody who is young here or desires to find somebody who is a worthy man or a worthy woman to pursue in marriage. And I would just say, what's their reputation? (laughs) Are they known for someone who is humble? Do people know them as someone who loves other people well? Does this reputation keep coming around to where you keep hearing that person's name and you go, man, she seems like she really loves God and loves people. That's intriguing to me. I want to get to know her. That's how I found my wife. (laughs) At At a school where there were many discipling opportunities going on and counseling and kept hearing about this woman, Kathy. And I'm kind of like, man, this, <laughs> this gal sounds pretty good. I got to get to know her. And, and then sure enough, yeah, I got to see that she did love the Lord. She does love people. She had people into her dorm as she was a resident director often. And she, and she loved people well. That was attractive. And the Lord worked that out all in perfect timing. It wasn't my timing, but the Lord worked it out in his timing. I just think this is a beautiful connection point to see what is going on here. But let's finish this last, last thought, and it's really, the, I think, one of the most full and beautiful thoughts here to end on, that grace is great, isn't it? <laughs> when you're a humble person, you can admit that. You could say, all I need is someone to treat me in a way that I don't deserve, and to give me all the things that I could never work for and be the kind of person that I could never be. And the Lord is the one who I'm going to for refuge and for provision. And at mealtime, verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. That's great. She didn't just go and get leftovers. She had so much that she had leftovers. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, And it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Like, whoa, what a catch. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to her, 
Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. You know what I see in this chapter 2? Is Boaz being, ex- being an extension and a reflection of the great grace that we have from God when we come to him? All the things that God supplies to us are things that are blessings that we don't deserve, and yet he gives them to us anyway. He is in covenant relationship with us, and so he is going to shower blessings on us. And it is never because you just did all these things just exactly right, but because he decided to show you grace and kindness, and he has comforted you. So when Boaz realizes that this is an opportunity to take this young convert to a follow, as a follower of Yahweh and to take care of her because he knows that God takes care of his people in this way, he, he says, enlist me, Yahweh. Let me be useful so that I can be someone who brings your goodness that you've already shown to me and I can bring it to this person who is in need. And that's how the community of God's people should love each other. We should be the people who are most full on the Lord And every time when you see somebody else who is empty, you just want to bless them. You're just like, what can I do to help this person? I've been given so much. Not that I may hold on to it, but that I might give it to others. So I see in Boaz a picture of how Christ has loved us and shown us grace upon grace. I hope that you'll come back next week if you're able to finish out this book, chapters three and four. It gets better and better, trust me. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for loving us where we are at. While we were still sinners, while we were strangers, while we were foreigners, rebels set against you in our own heart, wanting to do what was right in our own eyes, you died for us. You came to us. You came to sinners to save those who were far from you and bring you close, bring us close to you. And so now, in relationship to this gracious God who has entered into a covenant relationship with us through the blood of Christ, we come near to you. Jesus, when you came to this earth, we remember when you sat on the Mount of Olives and you looked across Jerusalem and you said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you up under my wings, but you would not have it. And God, we pray that we are those people who run quick to your side and stay low before you, depending on you for every good thing and always giving praise and thanks to you because it is all grace and it is all for your glory. May we be a community of people who draw near to you, who are richly filled with you, not finding our hopes in the things in this world, but our hope in you alone. And may it be evident to this watching world that they too, if they are a Moabite, need to be drawn in and brought close to a gracious, forgiving, loving, covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving God. Help us to stay near to you this week and long only for the things of you and how you have related to us through your son. In his name we pray, amen.